listening to the Apollo Podcast Network. One. Across midfield, Jones just waiting for somebody. Jones inside the 20 to the 10, and for the fifth time in his career, will not be stopped. This drives and a pull up three. Oh, drives. Dead high shooter. Blair to Patterson in the corner for three. To midcourt. That's Mark at the buzzer. Hello and welcome to another episode of Pod Slam Jamma presented by Apollo Media, all Houston, all original. I'm one of your hosts. My name is Andy Anas, and you can follow me on Twitter at Ayanas underscore five. With me today is a special co-host. You guys know him as Chris Gardner of the Houston Round Ball Review. I'll let him introduce himself a little bit. Chris, how are you doing? I'm doing great, man. Looking forward to uh, today's show. Let's have fun. For sure. And let's get right into it. We'll start with, uh, it's been a while since recorded. The last time we started the Houston University of Houston men's basketball team was in the midst of their winning streak. Since then, they have hit a bit of a rough patch, losing their last two games in a row. Uh, we're 9-0 in conference now. They're 9-2 and two and have slipped off the number one spot in the American Athletic Conference due to the tiebreaker with SMU. Let's start there. And uh, coming off the heels of their most recent loss on this past Saturday, February 12th, against Memphis, where uh, a bit of a game of runs, obviously, of course, Memphis jumping out early. I, I believe it was like 15-4 early on. Houston rallied back. They had a, a three-point lead at halftime. And then Memphis, um, it was kind of a bit of a back and forth until Memphis was able to kind of pull away late in the stretch. Um, we were talking about it a little bit, but Calvin Sampson spoke to reporters uh, the day they were recording this, February 15th, and he, he talked a little bit about their upcoming game against UCF. They've played them once before. They had to play them in Orlando. What were kind of Kelvin Sampson, what, what did he say about the differences that the team's expecting to see from UCF in their upcoming matchup on Thursday? Well, UCF is playing now uh, four-guard lineup, four guards and one, I guess, legit big man. So it would be kind of curious to see how U of H defends that because they did have a problem with, with SMU. And SMU basically played small ball, short ball, you know, however I term it, short ball. <clears throat> because that involves more of Reggie Cheney not on, on the floor more than Josh Carlton because it's harder for Josh Carlton to defend undersized quicker forwards. So we'll see how uh, Houston handles that. Will there be more time for Reggie Cheney, more time for Jawan Roberts, who will Fabian White defend in those four-guard situations? So Coach Sampson didn't obviously divulge any secrets, for us, we'll just have to wait and seek for Thursday's matchup. But he made a good point and bring it up off of recall because we did have issues with the recording of Coach Sampson's session. So just off the top of my head, Coach Sampson said that he has to do a better job of substituting his players, resting his players, because we'll get more specifics about Memphis and SB games in a bit. But Houston led in both those games. They led in both those games toward the end but they weren't able to finish off and get the wins. Now, could that be tired legs, the competition, whatever, but Coach Sampson said that he has to do a better job subbing in and out with the little depth that they do have earlier in games, in the first half, second half, whatever, in order to close out games better those final four or five minutes. You mentioned that game against Memphis. One of the things that the Tigers did really well, and really they did it the entire game, was press uh, the University of Houston. And they were in constant pressure, and that was a big factor into them jumping out early. Honestly, Houston, I think they, there was a one point where they had like seven turnovers in the first seven minutes of the of the first half. Uh, it was clear that, that Memphis kind of did a good job of being able to control the tempo early on in that game. And the Houston was kind of able to settle in as the game progressed. But I'd imagine, and I'm curious to get your thoughts on this. This Obviously, you've heard the phrase that it's a copycat type of sport where the, one team sees success in, in guarding something, another team's going to repeat it. And so Houston can prove that, that they can handle the press. Do you, do you expect that to be the case, not only with UCF, but with other teams going forward in conference play? 
And it should be. You know, it depends on if you have the personnel, because not every team has personnel like Memphis. But more teams should be uh, trapping full-court pressure defenses against Houston because of the, the limited guard depth, the lack of ball handlers, one through five for Houston. So, yeah, it, it should be. And I think Coach Sampson and the staff look for it. And probably, honestly, my opinion, I've been surprised that more teams haven't done it prior to these last couple of games in SMU and Memphis, that teams have not done more pressure defenses and trapping defenses against Houston. So going forward, I think it will, we'll see more of it. But saying that, I think because we'll see more of it, I think Houston will adapt to it and beat it uh, better, handle it better than they did against Memphis. Now, one thing that that's kind of really been a, a big concern for this team, after, especially after the injuries to Tremont Mark and, and Marcus Sasser, has obviously been that depth at the guard position. Uh, Jamal, Shen, uh, Jamal Shedd has been a nice piece for the team, especially uh, really the only true point guard on the roster, Kyler Edwards, who has stepped up big at moments in terms of his shooting, has kind of hit of a, a cold stretch the last few games. And then after that, uh, who they don't really have a third guard. Is it Ramon Walker? Sometimes Tajay Moore kind of fills in that spot there. But when Jamal Shedd isn't on the court, whether it be he needs to rest, like Kelvin Sampson mentioned, or it has to be, I mean, even foul trouble, uh, what can Houston do whenever teams are pressuring to kind of limit that type of the turnovers to be able to, to run their offense when Jamal Shedd's not on the floor? I think that's really where this team is the most susceptible to, to turnovers and mistakes. And really it's been where, um, it's kind of come back to bite them a bit in these past two games. When Jamal is on the bench, then the offense goes to Kyler Edwards and Taze Moore. Kyler Edwards is, is a point guard, definitely more so than Taze Moore is. Um, so the ball handling duties are different. Taze Moore, he's such a great athlete, but he's not a great, he's not a point guard. So let's, that's part of it. He he speeds up him he speeds up himself too much sometimes. He plays too fast when he has the ball in his hands. So he's leading the offense. And he makes poor decisions sometimes like that. And with Jamal on the bench, the team needs to slow down. Tazi Moore probably needs to slow down a little bit. I mean, yes, he's quick enough to probably be most of his the defenders in the conference off the dribble when he wants to. But sometimes this, you know, time in, of the game is more important, more important to be patient, more important to run the offense, more important to have, more important to get more passing the offense, more ball movement, get a chance for Josh Carlton or Fabian White to post up, go to those options more than just scoring fast. Because <clears throat> Houston's offense against SMU, the first 25, 28 minutes was clicking. SMU really had no answers for Houston's offense. Houston defense was not great. SMU kept scoring pretty much you know, back and forth with Houston, but it was different to three-point shooting. That's why Houston had 51 points led by 11 at halftime. But once Kyler Edwards got that fourth foul, when he got the fourth foul, Houston was up 13. He sat for four minutes, and he came back in the game, the lead was like four, just that quickly because they were trying. Houston still couldn't stop SMU. But the shots stopped falling. They were still playing too fast. They were trying to go point for point. Houston does not have the team and the depth right now, well, this season, to play fast and go point for point for 40 minutes. They just can't do it. So they need to slow down sometimes. And Coach Sampson also said this. The uh, more we talk, the more I remember from the media session is he wants better shot distribution. He does not like seeing Jamal Shedd take so many shots at the expense of a Josh Carlton or at the expense of Fabian White, the, the low post guys. He wants better distribution. Let's go inside out. So a lot of different things, but Jamal has to do a better job of staying on the floor, avoid reaching fouls, uh, taking better shots, not just um, – He's similar to the way Taze Moore. Just because you can beat your man off the dribble doesn't mean you need to go and take the shot. You still need to get your other teammates involved 
and maybe get them better shots than what, what you can get. So he's learning on the fly because, you know, he wasn't running the offense last season. He's new to this as well. So he's still learning in the position to just take it slow, get more passing, more ball movement in the offense. And probably in one simple term, the longer the possessions take, it's better for your teammates to get some rest, which helps may help down the stretch. Real quickly, before we kind of get it more into the UCF matchup, uh, take a look around the American Athletic Conference. SMU, like we mentioned, they are now number one in the American Athletic Conference at nine and two with their conference record. They're eighteen and five overall. They finally received some AP poll votes. Uh, these upcoming poll that, that was recently released this past Monday, Houston's at second at nine and two, and Memphis not that far behind at eight and four. I, I, I want to touch on you on another comment that I saw that Kelvin Sampson said about the American Athletic Conference overall. He said that the conference is a, a multi-bid league. He put Memphis and SMU in that conversation along with Houston. Would you agree in that assessment that that those two teams? Um, and I, I won't give you that. I'll, I'll kind of force you to pick on someone. But if the tournament started today, would if you were a voter, would you put SMU and Memphis in the tournament? Uh, probably, probably Memphis more, although they've had, they've had better wins than SMU, but they've also had better, worse losses than SMU. So that's kind of tough to say. Uh, but I know, uh, um, ESPN's Joe Lenardi has Memphis with the first team out still. So they're not in, he has SMU in because of, they are the automatic qualifier basically because of their win over Houston. So if the season ended today, they have the head to head tiebreaker over Houston, but so SMU is like an 11 seed in his bracket. Houston's on a four seed. So I guess with the, that logic, SMU, I'd pick in, but I think as the season continues to wind down, Memphis still has better wins than SMU. So the Tigers, they're healthy now. So they can get everything together, stay connected. I think they have a very good chance of getting in a tournament. And then it's a case of getting three teams in because one question I did ask coach Sampson, what, it, what will it take to change their perception of um, the American athletic conference nationally? And he said, it's point blank winning in March, advancing in the tournament. You know, Houston's done their part, you know, to lift up the conference and carry the flag, carry the banner, um, you know, Michigan, Kentucky advancing in tournaments through 16, a final four, but they need, other teams like Wichita State was lost in the first four last year. You know, you need to get more teams to the that second weekend, which means Sweet 16. That happens year in, year out. Then people will start to recognize and hopefully realize how good the conference is for the next season afterwards. So, but that's what it takes to going to win, winning games in March in the tournament. Transitioning before we kind of wrap things up here on the men's side, uh, taking a look more at UCF, who they've actually won their. They've won their last two games. They're winners of three of their last four. <laughs> their only loss coming to, to Memphis uh, on February 5th. So it, it, it's interesting that you mentioned that um, one of the biggest changes that Calvin said he expects to see uh, in this matchup in terms of when they last saw them was that four-guard lineup by UCF. And when I hear that, I tend to think that that'll favor UCF in terms of pace. They're going to want to run up and down the court more. So it's going to be that style of clash uh, between obviously what, what you mentioned, Houston wants to slow things down. They don't want to be an up and uh, a downhill team, obviously because of the lack of depth. Now, in terms of matchup, do you think Houston matches up well with UCF against a four guard lineup or what, what kind of potential challenges will that be? Because you mentioned uh, also Josh Carlton has, has kind of struggled a little bit with how teams have defended him in terms of like you um, being able to double team him in the post and force him to kick it out. It, it's much easier for this Houston team in terms of offensively to have Jamal Shedder, one of the guards, create for the big man instead of just dumping it down in the post and having him create. Now, a four-guard lineup, you'd imagine that Fabian and Josh Carlton, one of them would have an advantage, but then on the other end, that's really where Houston kind of has to, to figure out how to – that's where they would be at a disadvantage, for the lack of a better saying. Right. Uh, they're still going to play man-to-man. Coach Sampson said that, just you know – Regardless of UCF going four guards, he said Cougs will still play man-to-man. So it's a question of who's going to defend who. Uh, the matchup on the offensive end, Fabian against whatever guard UCF tossed at him, he should be on the post. He should get more looks like that. And then it's up to Jamal 
Kyler, Tazi Moore to kick the ball, give good pass to Fabian in the post to let him go to work, either straight one-on-one post-ups or if the double team comes, then Fabian has to do a good job making the right pass, rotate it around to the open shooter, then that person has to make the shot. So it should be a little simpler. But regarding Coach uh, Josh Carlton and double teams that will come his way, Coach Sampson also mentioned that he hopes that the officiating starts to favor the big man again because he believes that teams are getting away with fouling Josh Carlton in the post far too often. And that's disrupting one of the reasons uh, Josh has struggled of late because he's getting fouled, contact against him, you know, the pushing the back, you know, other kind of fouls that are not being called. But even the ones that are called, Josh needs to go to the line, make the free throws. So he struggled at that also. So it's, you know, six in one hand, half dozen in the other. There are issues um, for Josh's struggles. Offensively, he's got to make he's got to make a way. He's got to be the best big man on the floor most of the time. And starting Thursday, he's got to resume that. I think he's hit a wall. I think Kyle Edwards has hit a wall as well. To be expected, February, a lot of, a lot of players hit the wall this, this point in the season in college basketball. So we'll see how he handles that. And hopefully, I'll, I'll say this is kind of ironic because Coach Sampson is, is a coach. He likes to put it out there publicly for people to hear, whether that people be coaches, media, officials, to hear about calling more fouls against my big man. Well, unfortunately, today's session wasn't recorded, so it's not, not available for anybody else to hear except those who are on the call to get the word out. So we'll see if it has any impact on Thursday's game and if Josh will get more fouls called while people are defending him and uh, sending him to the line to get more free throw attempts. Of Zoom technology, real quickly, um, before we, we transition, Houston's still fifth in the net rankings. I wanted to ask you, do you feel that this skid is, like you mentioned, is it just uh, the time of the season it is? It, it was a tough portion of the schedule where they had to play at Cincinnati, at SMU, turn around, play Memphis. Is it more of a product of the schedule and kind of a little bit of the lack of depth catching up to them, or do you see any long-term issues with this team going forward? I, I don't see any long-term issues. I think if they lose to UCF, that'd be too straight at home. Then I think we should have some concerns. I think it's more of the opponents, the schedule, the lack of depth combinations. And these players on Houston's team, this year's squad, they didn't play in last year's Memphis games. Mm -hmm. You know, Kyla Edwards was at Texas Tech. Josh was at UConn. Tazio was at Bakersfield. Jamal Shedd probably played last year, if at all. So, they don't know what, it, what the rivalry is between Houston and Memphis. Whereas Memphis, Landers Nolly, Alex Lomax, John Jay Williams, Lester Quinones, they lost narrow games to Houston last year. Okay. So they know, and they were sky high to beat Houston. So they were ready to go. These Houston players didn't have that same mentality going into the game. and was one reason, fresh defense that Memphis, Memphis played well, well, one reason why Memphis went after that 15-4 start. Yeah, you mentioned it. Quinones, uh, Landers, Nolly, they were all jawing at the, the University of Houston student section. I mean, even before the game even started, there, there was a profanity chant that was yeah. reported by uh, Memphis uh, players coming out of the locker room. But we're going to leave it there in terms of the men's side coming right up on Parsana Jamma. We'll t- transition over to the women's basketball team who, after snapping their long losing streak, went one, two in a row, and then ran into, once again, UCF, the wall they can't get over. We'll discuss more about that coming right up on Pot Simon Jamma covering your UH Athletics. Looking for a better way to rep H-Town? Be sure to check out ApolloHOU.com for Astros and Rockets apparel you can't find anywhere else. Use promo code LAUNCH for 10% off at checkout. Apollo HOU, all Houston, all original. And we are back here on Pod Slam and Jamma. Like we mentioned at the end of the break, we're going to talk more about the women's basketball team. Chris Gardner joining me, special co-host for this episode. And like I mentioned, after their extended losing streak, the women's basketball team was able to win two straight, uh, a couple of narrow victories, including an impressive one at SMU. 
But then once again, they turn around, they come to Fertitta Center, and they can't get over the hump. It is has been UCF for the last couple of seasons. I believe, Chris, I can't remember the number specifically, but that extends their losing streak to UCF. I want to say, is it 11? That Straight sounds about right. Yeah, that sounds about Which, right. I know it's, it's been years. <laughs> so, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, which is absurd. And once again, uh, the University of Houston women's basketball team failed to score, reach 50 points. Um, and the three games that they've played, uh, UCF, USF, those two Florida schools that Ron Hughes before the season started said that I think those are the teams that are trying to catch up in the American Athletic Conference. They haven't, against UC, USF, they didn't even reach 40. Against UCF this past game, they only broke to 44. So offense struggles continue to be the problem when they lose games. Uh, and this is a bit of an interesting stat. And the women's basketball team have lost 12 games, 10 of those 12. In 10 of those 12 losses, they have failed to score 60 or more points in those losses. So it seems like when they win, they their offense is something. When they lose, they really struggle to put the ball in the basket. Chris, I, I want to get your thoughts more on that loss to UCF. Again, um, offensive struggles, it seems to be the case when they lose. What what are you seeing from this uh, women's basketball team's offense when they when they really struggle? Because it looks when they're, when they're doing bad, they're bad. But when they're clicking on all cylinders, they're doing good. In a nutshell, Andy, they don't shoot well. They don't have enough good shooters. I mean, that's just it point blank. And it's made worse. It, it shines through worse against UCF, who is one of the top defensive teams in the country, not just in the conference, in the country. They like playing slow. They like playing ugly. And Houston's three-point shooting, I don't think they're shooting 20, what is it, 28%. As a team from three-point range, which is just awful. That's just ugly basketball. It's 29.3, excuse me. So it's probably worse than that conference play. Um, three-point shooting is bad. When Layla Blair struggles to make shots from the outside, the team struggles to make shots. Brittany Anya same thing. She's, she's a streaky shooter. They have a, a bunch of streaky shooters on the team. They don't have any pure shooters on the squad. So it, it really hurts them. And... Their defense has been, for the most part, good enough to win, not say all of these games they've lost, but probably at least half of them. But the offense has been nowhere close to being good enough. I think the South Florida game, USF, they struggled to make shots. They only scored 55, yet they won by 20 because Houston scored 35. So, you know, that's a problem. Coach Huey has said to us for a while now that he likes to, he would like to get what 80 possessions in a game. Mm-hmm. Well, okay. To do that, you got to play fast, but you also have to know how to hold onto the ball, which means limiting your turnovers, but that you also got to know how to take good shots. You know, they're turning the ball over and see them. They're forcing more turnovers than they are committing, but they're shooting so poorly. And, you know, some of these numbers, they're lucky to break 30% on the floor in a game. You can't win games like that. I, you know, well, it's hard, very hard to win games like that. I don't care how good your defense is. And let's just be real. The conference is not great. South Florida is struggling mm-hmm. to beat anybody else. I mean, they're, they're winning games. They're, they're not beating UCF. UCF has risen to the cream of the top of the conference. And... Coach Huey said to us, you just touched on it, that before the season, he said UCF, USF were the teams to beat. You need to beat those teams to be part of the, the upper tier of the conference. They haven't gotten it done. So once again, they're staring at having to win a conference championship to earn the auto bid to get to the NCAA tournament. And before we get into more specifics of recently, I'm curious to hear your thoughts in terms of how the team has overall struggled throughout the season. And before the season even started, did you did you imagine this team to struggle? Like you mentioned, the, the offensive struggles that they they like you said at the end of the day they struggled to put. What's the saying that Calvin Sampson always says? They struggled to put the biscuit in the basket yes. for a lot of these losses. Are you surprised that, especially in terms of all the talent that they had coming back? Like they brought back most of the team last season when they had their best season in, in years, especially under Ron Huey. 
And it has been a completely 180. hasn't been able to click. They added transfers. They're not necessarily a young team where you could point to that. Uh, they, they've just really struggled to put it all together. I'm, I'm very surprised at the struggles offensively. You know, they, they have not had great shooting for a while. But they should be able to, with their pressure defense and with their depth, at least that was the expectation coming into the season, with their depth to play 9, 10, 11 players and wear opponents down and play fast, play fast and get layups. Getting layups is a benefit to a team who can't make shots from the outside well. But they're not even playing fast enough and getting into off early offense to beat teams. They cannot score in half court against teams the defense set. That's a struggle. I'm looking at Tatiana Hill, low post option. She hasn't had a great year. Uh, Duco forward, Tamara Nord, we were told she was going to have an impact. Has hardly had an impact, especially in the post area. Fatu Dion, transfer from Purdue, a big. Purdue, Andy, that's Big Ten basketball. With UConn no longer in the American, Big Ten women's basketball is superior to AAC women's basketball. So I kind of thought, thought, I didn't assume it, but I thought Fatu would be able to dominate in the American. She hasn't done that. So that's low post scoring. One of the leaders we thought coming in, um, Julia Blackshell Fair hasn't had a great season. Diamond Gladney has not had a great season. So you, you t- add all that up, plus the injuries, issues right there. Uh, Layla Blair struggling to make shots. It's just been a domino effect, and that's why they're struggling to win games. Yeah, for sure. And, and going back to the to the offensive struggles, you mentioned their, their three-point shooting field goal percentage uh, for the season in the conference. I believe this is for the entire season uh, for Houston up to this point through 23 games. They're shooting, like you mentioned, a 29.3% on threes and from the field total. So counting for twos and threes, they're shooting an abysmal 37.6% from the field, not the three-point line from the field, which is towards the bottom of the conference. They're tense. The only team that's worse than them in that regard is East Carolina, shooting at just over 36%. From the field, so like you mentioned, that they've really struggled to. to the, the point of the game is to score. And they've really struggled to be able to do that. Um, but I, I, I want to get more into specifically of that UCF game, and not not to beat a dead horse with a what is the saying? Beat a dead horse with a sticker. I, I don't remember the saying, but it's something like that. But going back to those Florida schools, and really the first game that they had against UCF, where they showed promise, they had. Oh, and I, I always lose track in how many specific shots they had in the final position. It, it was multiple, whether it was five, probably north of five, to tie the game, send it to overtime, and, and finally chase that brass ring that they've been chasing and, and beating UCF. And they weren't able to do it, but when with Dayon and I said in this podcast previously, is, you know, maybe that could fuel them that, you know, hey, we, had, we were right there. It was on the road. We could have beaten them and kind of motivate them to to kind of take off in the conference and instead the opposite happened they completely were unable to to get any momentum from that they lost six in a row and and really struggled like you mentioned to to just score and a lot of those losses were single digits whether it was against memphis whether it was against tulane temple and when i see that it's close losses like that where they do you, see, do you feel like that UCF loss affected them in Psyche where it was the opposite or it's just they haven't been able to get the necessary stops needed to, to be able to get over the hump against a lot of these teams? I think it's both. I think injuries are a factor. Bria Patterson missed some games. Uh, Diamond Gladney missed some games. Apparently due to personal issues she had to deal with, not necessarily injuries. So add that, that to the disappointment of not being able to get the win at UCF because they did not shoot the ball well for three quarters. That fourth quarter against UCF, they made like six of their first seven threes or whatever it was. They were and on Brittany fire. Anjage. Brittany yeah. Anjage was on fire too. They, and they, they took a lead with 
a minute and change to go. I think they're up three, but they were not able to close a deal. And you're right, those closing seconds, they were down three and had numerous chances at uh, three-point shots that rolled out, bounced off the room, got off and three bounds, another chance, another shot, miss, miss, miss. So the disappointment of their loss, I think, weighed on them, carried to the next game, and then it snowballed. And we probably have to do some looking at the numbers from that loss because they was, were into, into that game. They started out 2-0 in conference. If it just really took their confidence and making shots is confidence because if you get to a point where you start taking shots, you're thinking, I hope this goes in or I pray this goes in rather than thinking, I know this is going to go in. It impacts the rest of your game and it, it's contagious. And that, that look, that could be the start, the impetus of the struggles offensively because they haven't been a great shooting team this whole season. But I think during that losing streak, it got worse. And Bria Patterson came back and she was able to help them, especially in the win at SMU. That helped. But the shooting numbers still weren't great against SMU. They just were able to rebound and, and score on, on putbacks, you know, things like that. So the confidence is gone from the team. You know, I'm not going to name the name of the player, but after uh, I saw her Saturday afternoon, UH men scam against Memphis. And I just asked her where her head was at. And she said, I'm good. I'm okay. And I'm like, are you sure? Yeah, I'm good. I'm like, okay. I was very confident in her answer, <laughs> but she said she was okay. So we'll see. I, I think that confidence is shaken. And now they got to finish strong and get ready for conference tournament play. Now, do you, do you think that's realistic that they can salvage the season? Uh, go on a run and, and no. shock, shock. Them. No, 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 I don't. And because I, I don't believe that uh, the team is confident in themselves to uh, be able to turn it on and get it going and get things done uh, and make a run at, at the conference championship. No, I don't. And Chris, when I, when I hear that and going back to what you said earlier about a lot of these players that were expected to take that jump, whether it was Julia Blackshell Fair. Diamond Gladly, a lot of these transfers. I mean, heck, even Layla Blair, there was, I can't remember what game it was specifically, but there was one where she was really struggling offensively. I think she started off 0 for 10, and she just couldn't figure out, uh, again, the offensive struggles. To me, that goes, and, and Chris, I'm going to put you on the spot a little bit. To me, that's coach. What say you? Yeah, you put me on the spot there. Uh, let's, I'll go one step before, then I have to come back to answer your question. Layla Blair, I think during the two games, the two wins to start conference play for Houston, her performances got her name to the NCAA's starting five as mm-hmm. for like that week, one of the best five players in the country. She has not been close to that since then. Nowhere close. And I think she and the team have regressed. She has not taken a step forward in this season in her play. And you have to look at the coaching, look at the staff. And we're just going to for our sake, who we focus on Houston basketball, men's and women's, look at the, the results, player development on the men's side compared to the player development on the women's side. Who does it better? Who, who's accomplished more? Who, who's, what do you see the results as a positive? Men's team, women's team. It's the men's team, by far. It's, it's not, it's not, there's no question. So right. that's coaching. And even with, with all the struggles for the UH team, both in non-conference, in-conference, just to kind of get a picture of, of where the American Athletic Conference stands in terms of women's basketball, Houston is still fourth in the net rankings behind Tulane, USF, and UCF. Houston is currently 87th in the net. Um, just your thoughts on that with Houston still being fourth in the conference. Well, I mean, that's part of that is, who Houston, and this is one thing we do have the credit Coach Huey for, he does schedule tough opponents in non-conference play much more often than the other teams in the conference, despite mm-hmm. the conference administrators asking, urging 
the coaches to schedule tougher teams, not conference, because it helps the conference. Too many teams in this conference don't do that. And, you know, UH being ranked 89th in the net, and that's being fourth best in the conference, despite their struggles and the losses, goes to show you the, the other non-conference uh, schedules for the rest of the teams in the conference. So that's a problem. But it'll be a problem next year. But after that, <laughs> Houston will have to worry about that because they'll be in the Big 12 and they'll have to deal with other issues like a bigger program, bigger conferences, better teams, and unfortunately more losses unless things change. Do you think the struggles from this season will affect them in terms of recruiting and, and future players as they head into the Big 12? Uh, I think it should. Uh, but I'm not sure it has yet. You know, some players want to play in a big conference and they will play at, you You know, U-Rates facility-wise, especially women's basketball, facilities are great. And they're, they're top tier compared to many other women's basketball programs that probably even in some big five, power five programs. But the results on the court aren't the same. And, you know, we can talk about it more in our other show about coaching changes, things like that, because the result, the goal is to get to the NCAA tournament. And this staff, this regime has not done that. So at what point does the administration make a change? Because we don't see, think they're going to make a tournament this year. So that'll be eight straight years of no trip to the NCAA tournament. But what else? I mean, how much? How many more chances are you going to give the staff? Yeah, for sure. And, and heading into the, to the season, their motto being unfinished business. They, they're one of those first teams out a season ago uh, actually they were the first team out had any team needed to uh to cancel or postpone their their game in the NCAA tournament due to COVID last season Houston would have been the first team to get to get a call to be invited and it been has been completely uh 100 uh 180 degree turn uh from this past season but we're going to leave it there speaking of power five conferences we're going to transition over to football a little bit and still an American athletic conference but Two future head coaches that will be leading Power Five schools coming right up: Luke Fickle, Dana Holgerson. Contract extensions right here on Pot Slamma Jam. Looking for a better way to rep H-Town? Be sure to check out ApolloHOU.com for Astros and Rockets apparel you can't find anywhere else. Use promo code LAUNCH for ten percent off at checkout. Apollo HOU, all Houston, all original. And we're back for our final segment here on Pod Slamajama, joined by my guest co-host, Chris Gardner of the Houston Roundball Review. We transition into our final segment for today's show, which will be the contract extensions given to the top two teams that finished this past the 2021 season in the American Athletic Conference football-wise, Cincinnati and Houston. They both chose to, or they both I guess Houston technically hasn't announced it, but they've it's been reported that both head coaches will be given contracts, substantial contract extensions uh, to continue to lead their respective programs going forward. And we'll start with the Houston perspective, obviously the head coach for the football team here, Dana Holgerson, who uh, we, we chatted about this a little bit when it was first announced. Um, and it actually broke right before the Houston Memphis basketball game on Saturday that Holgerson had and Houston had agreed to an extension. The details have not yet been released, but uh, the original contract he signed back in 2019 when he joined the program uh, was for just over, uh, I believe it was around $4.2 million uh, per year, uh, five-year contract that estimated about $20 million for five seasons. There was a clause in there where if Houston joined a Power Five conference, which they did this past year, joining announcing that they were going to join the Big 12 by 2023, that he would get uh, $1 million bonus in his contract in Hogerson, I'm speaking of. And once again, going back to this past Saturday, it was announced that both the University of Houston and Dana Hogerson had come to terms on a contract extension um, that'll keep him in Houston for the foreseeable future. He spoke to reporters at the University of Houston men's basketball game on Saturday, and, and a couple of things he said 
Um, again, kind of just reiterating that this, Dan Hogerson sees this as his last final job, that he's not going to coach anywhere else after Houston. This is it for him. Uh, but before we get into specifics, your thoughts on Dana Hogerson getting that contract extension after his first, I, I mean, let me set it up for you, Chris, his first uh, winning season with the University of Houston. Um, now, granted, he inherited the 2019 season at uh, off the heels of three or four games of the Eric King before he decided to redshirt. They finished four and eight and off the COVID season when they finished three and five. And now finally in his third year, they were able to turn around, finish 12 and two overall and appearance in the American Athletic Conference championship game where they lost to Cincinnati, who ended up going to the college football playoff. And they ended up in the top 25 AP poll to end the season. Chris, what are your thoughts on Dana Holgerson's contract extension to stay in Houston? Kudos to his agent. He has a very good agent because you touched on it. I think Dana was what seven and thirteen before going twelve and two this past season, something like that. It was a losing record for sure. Yeah, correct, seven and thirteen. Losing record ha- had not beaten a team with a winning record until this season. But the clause in the contract, the agent, the great job of taking taking advantage of Houston's desperation to want to make an impact higher and hired Hogerson and put the clause in the contract to open up renegotiations, assuming Houston got into a Power 5 conference, which they finally did. So that was the impetus for the extension. I have an issue with it. I'm not mad at Dana for for getting it. Like I said, kudos to his agent for, for putting those contract stipulations in there. One issue I have is why was this announced on Saturday on the day of a big basketball game on campus? Whoever leaked it to um, the local media or the media with the athletic, I couldn't wait till Sunday to do this. This was an hour or so before the basketball game between Houston and Memphis. Um, top Two of the top three teams in the conference basketball-wise, and yet y'all are still in the basketball program thunder with a football announcement, which goes to show, once again, football is king, despite the fact that the football team has not had great success in the last five, six years. Birmingham Bowl victory, hooray, over a, at the time of the game, 500 Auburn team who has their own struggles now, apparently, their head coach. So still in the thunder from your basketball program that is coming off a Final Four trip to it to leak a story, leak because it's not yet been made official by the school of the contract extension. So whoever this was leaked the story on the day of a huge basketball game on campus. So I have an issue with that. But other than that, you know, Dana made a public statement and, you know, paraphrasing here, whether some folks like it or not, it is what it is. And the job is different now than when he first took over and his, his duties and things have changed a little bit. Yes, he's, he's correcting that. That's a factual statement. But there are some folks who don't like it because he's being rewarded for one year of success after two failures. He's getting more years in his contract, probably a bump in pay because of one season. And he's just happens to be going, leading the program into the Big 12. Okay, good luck to you, sir. As an alum, I hope you do well. You still haven't proven enough to me that you can beat good teams, good slash great teams, Saturday after Saturday, but you're being paid to do it. But now you see Luke Fickle with their new deal, he's being greed upon. He'll be the highest paid coach. And, and Andy, you know, Commissioner Michael Oresco won't like us because we keep referencing and saying power five, group of five, but Luke Fickle will be earning more annual salary than Dana Hogerson for now. Until, well, you know, we'll see until the terms of Hogo's new deal, you know, the extension are announced. So I wonder if there's a, a clause in Dana's contract stating that he must be the highest paid coach in group of five. Because if so, with Luke Fickle's announcement, Will that mean you've got to pay him $1 more than Luke Fickle? So 
we'll see about all that. But no issues with the contract. I don't think Dana earned it, but that's not the point. Stipulations were in the contract, be renegotiated. If the team goes to the Big 12, well, that's going to happen. So that's on U of H. They did it. They agreed to it, honor the contract, and hopefully Dana will have success. I wonder if there are clauses in there pertaining to attendance at TDECU Stadium, because it needs to be, because he cool. needs to do a better job of marketing and getting out there and putting more butts in the seats, because that should be part of his job. Oh, man, that that would be one interesting contract if it has to do with tied attendance figures that if you get if Houston can get past the the usual. And honestly, I don't know what they they consider and if it's tickets sold, tickets scanned. But usually the attendance that they announce at TDCU, at least the last couple of seasons, and albeit we're not counting uh, the COVID year because they they were at 25 percent capacity. I'm going back to 2019. And the first early games this past in the 2021 season, um, the attendance hovered around between 25,000 and, and 28,000 between that range um, for, for most of those games um, in the non-COVID years and Dana Horson. But before we get into Luke Fickle, I'm going to go back to that Texas Tech game to open the season and like you mentioned, one kudos to Dana Holgerson's agent. And but honestly, what a turnaround after that Texas Tech game where Houston was up early in the first half and they have a complete second half meltdown where Texas Tech, um, honestly, they scored. I want thirty-one an answer to finish that game. I think so. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because they were leading twenty-one-seven. I think it was twenty uh, thirty-eight twenty-one. If you would have told people, can you imagine then, right after that Texas Tech game, that just not even seven months, eight months later, Dana Holgerson would have a contract extension that'll keep him for the long term? Uh, and from the from what he told reporters at that men's basketball game on Saturday, it looks like he's certainly going to be here for a while. It, it honestly, it might rival Luke Fickle's contract in terms of length. Um, that Dana Holgerson was going to sign that extension and that for the most part, the support, at least what I'm seeing, Chris, I know you're following along. I'm curious to see what you've seen from, from the people, you know, but the support has been receptive and, and positive in terms of Dana Holgerson's contract extension. Has that been the same for you? Not for my friends. Nope. Mm. Not for my friends. My friends want to uh, take their money back from the deposits. Oh, so, no. really? Yeah. Wow. Yes. They're, they're not happy with this at all. And I'll just, I'll just put it like this. Uh, the 2022 season, Houston will be the favorite, apparently the favorite to win the conference. Okay. So Cincinnati, I think, is losing a lot of major pieces from this championship team. So Houston is starting quarterback position. Houston has an advantage there. It's a turning quarterback. So we'll see how Houston does being expected to win with higher expectations. First things first, can Dana lead this team to deal with higher expectations? Because this year, going 12 and two, nobody saw them going 12 and two. We talked about them maxed out at eight and four. And when they laid that egg against Texas Tech, nobody thought they would run the table like they did. But it took advantage of a, a soft schedule. And now was and non-conference schedule is pretty soft next year too. Yeah. So we'll see what they do with higher expectations. What you know, if, if he get it, gets it done. I mean, I, I showed you the prediction, got them going to the Cotton Bowl. Well, that is based on them being the top, sorry, Commissioner Resco, top G five school. <laughs> so the expectations are there and are going to be there. So what happens if he, the team goes nine and three, eight and four, doesn't win the American? We'll see how things change. We'll see if the people who are all happy and giddy about this extension, what they react, what the reaction is if Houston does not go 12 and 2 again. Eight and four. You mentioned eight and four, and it, it reminds me of uh, the, honestly a pretty famous saying that a certain president at the University of Houston talked about coaches at eight and four. Chris, you remember that saying? You remember? I the sure state? do. Because it only applies to football, apparently. doesn't does not apply to women's basketball. Or any of the other sports, for that matter. Mm-hmm. Um, as the, the 
on an unrelated note, the baseball season's about to start for the University of Houston as well. Uh, but I, I digress. And uh, real quick, I did want to mention uh, Luke Fickle's contract that they also announced, uh, Cincinnati announced that they had, is reported. I have actually, let me let me quickly double check to see if Cincinnati has officially reported. But it has certainly been reported that Luke Fickle has also agreed to a long-term contract extension. And some of the details have been um, released, which like you alluded to, um, according to, to the report, Luke Fickle has agreed to a contract extension that will keep him in Cincinnati until 2028, and he will get paid $5.2 million per year as a part of that contract extension, uh, according to reports. And obviously, they're coming off their best season ever. They were the first, going back to, to Michael Oresco, they were the first group of five school to ever have an appearance in the college football playoffs, obviously losing to, to Alabama. Um, but like you said, uh, completely different from Halverson extension to Fickle's extension. Uh, and, and when it came to the progress from Cincinnati, it was certainly a gradual progress that you saw going back to the 2019 season. That was really when Cincinnati kind of um, first cracked the top of the, of the rankings and then going to the 2020 season where they, once again, they were undefeated for it throughout uh, until they ran into um, their bowl game. I can't remember exactly who they played in that bowl game. Georgia. They played Georgia yes. and they lost to to Georgia in the bowl game. And but they kept that momentum. And then coming into this season, where they had once again another perfect season, uh, ran through Houston, the American Athletic Conference, and then they ran into uh, Alabama. Um, I mean, depending really that they probably had lost the game before they even stepped foot on the field. But they, to be honest, they they. They didn't have the worst performance against Alabama. They were uh, – the defense certainly had their spurts. And, and, I mean, it wasn't an embarrassing performance against Alabama per se compared to, to what they're capable of. But it, it'll be interesting to see, like you said, those details with Dana Horson's contract extension. First, how long the extension is. Does it run through 2028 like Luke Pickle's contract? And what that salary is because the Horson was already making um, – north of $4 million per year with, with the incentives that he had reached. Now he will certainly, I'd imagine it's going to be a significant pay increase at all. I'd be surprised, to be honest, if it doesn't take him over the hump of Luke uh, Fickle's contract extension. I will say this, I, and it, it's interesting that from here, from your perspective, you said that there are people that, that weren't happy with Hogerson's contract extension, like you mentioned. Um, certainly uh, uh, being able to take advantage of the circumstances and cer- certainly seems like there's been a lot of positive momentum after that Texas Tech game where there's been noise, um, not noise, but it was the announcement that Houston was going to be joining the Big 12. And like you said, taking advantage of the schedule. I mean, outside of Texas Tech, the non-conference opponents that they beat were Rice, Grambling, and UConn. And then in terms of the conference schedule, the toughest teams that they played uh, where SMU, they didn't have to play Cincinnati in the, in the regular season until they met in the conference championship. So, um, and not to take any, anything away, that Houston did what they were supposed to when it comes to the schedule, but now comes the expectation, uh, barring anything changing, they'll have to play one more year in the American Athletic Conference. Like you said, now their expectations are favored to win the American Athletic Conference. It'll be if I was in management shoes, and, and Chris, I'll, I'll get your thoughts on this. If you were in University of Houston leadership shoes, I would have waited for this final year in the American Athletic Conference to see if that momentum carries. And they kind of see that progress that Cincinnati saw where the you know, first year in 2019, they, they cracked the top 25. They kept that momentum in 2020, and then they slowly built to that in 2021. What say you, Chris? I agree. No question. But the problem is it goes back to the stipulations in the contract because of the great job the agent did with the verbiage that says if Houston is invited and accepted to join a power five, the contract must be renegotiated. Well, UH administration agreed to that. So Dana Hogerson, great timing for him. He's getting a bump in pay more years on his contract based on one year of success. So I, I wish me and you had that kind of fortune. <laughs> one year of success after two years of not doing well, or we're going to get a bump in pay and long years on a contract. 
but that's not the case. I think, and apparently we'll, we'll see when the um, conference announces the football schedule, but it does not sound like Houston will play Cincinnati in the regular season again. So Houston gets another not as strong uh, schedule for two years in a row. So Houston could take advantage of that, plus a shaky non-conference schedule again. So it's not, this is not uh, going to prove that Dana's a great coach beating the average teams. You know, I want to see what he does against good to team, good teams and better teams and win games like that. Beating these teams that on paper they're better than, okay, well, that's a step in the program's uh, progress. But the Big 12 is, has a whole bunch of teams better than U of H. But they're not in the Big 12 just yet. So if they go 8-4, and 9-3 this year, and if they don't do what, what has been projected for them and reach a big – the Power 6 bowl game, is that a failure? Well, some people see that as a failure, especially going into – this should be the last year in the American and going into the Big 12. Um, Luke Fickle's contract will be finalized, I think, Next week, the board's going to, you know, agree to it, vote on all the kind of, you know, technical legal things. But and part of his agreement is more money for his coaches. And also, I love this, an indoor practice facility, which is the the rage. And it's the big thing to do for major programs. You got to have an indoor football practice facility. U of H is going to have one. That's a plan for them, too. I wonder all this money's coming from. Because they sure spend it on football and probably anywhere else on campus, other sports or other buildings, academics, whatever. That's a whole other story for us to get into. But, <laughs> you know, good for Dana. I don't think he's a great coach. I've said that on record. You know, the people at West Virginia aren't sad he's gone. You know, they're waiting for him to flame out here because he did it there. So his track record of success is not great. As an alum, I hope he proves me wrong. I have, hey, if he does a great job at U of H, that means U of H is rolling football. Love to see it. I would like to see him prove me wrong. Yeah, and, and going back to, to leadership perspective, what would make me uneasy about giving him a contract extension, like you said, after this past season is, you know, what happens if they don't see that success, if they don't continue to build? Then you head into the Big 12, and, I mean, quite frankly, Houston is screwed if it doesn't work out, especially the first few seasons of the Big 12, because if you move away from Homerson, you can, I'd imagine they can't keep handing out money to... to exactly. Coaches. You know, that's an issue. We'll see what the buyout is going to be if he does not have success in the Big 12. And you and I, we're not wishing bad things to happen to him. We're not wishing for um, losses to mount in the football program. But based on what we see in attendance at the football game or lack thereof, the money's not there. The revenue is not there. So where is the money going to come from if Hoverson does not have success? And if U of H struggles to get the 500 in the Big 12, will there be enough money to buy him out? Because if not, then the struggles to get to 500, the team may be four years from now, struggling to get to 400. And if you can't buy them out again, then what if they go three and three and nine instead of eight, four, nine, and three? Then what? Then you're behind the A ball a lot because you got to pay a new coach, new staff because of four bad seasons in a row. And you have the brand new football facility being built as well at some point next, what, five years? Which, according to reports, that supposedly is going to get announced in the near future as well, which it'll, it'll be interesting, but that's going to do it for today's episode. If you haven't done so already, please be sure to subscribe to the podcast, wherever you're listening, whether it's Apple podcast, Spotify, or anywhere else that you may be listening. Also be sure to follow at Apollo HOU for blogs, merch videos, podcasts, and more original Houston sports content. Uh, before I sign off, Chris Gardner, I want to thank you for joining, certainly, especially after a short notice. Um, is your time uh, advertise yourself? Thank you, man. I, I was glad to be able to. Uh, I'm glad I had time to do it. 
to join you on, on Paul Sama Gemma. I always enjoy talking Cougs athletics with you on this show and also on our show, Folk Talk of Sports. But I am on Twitter at V-T-H-E-H-R Review, HoustonRoundBarReview.com, Houston Round Bar Review on YouTube and Instagram. Houston Round Bar Review has been around longer than my man, Andy Yana, has been alive. <laughs> been around since 1994. Local name, Global Perspective. As always, thank you so much for listening. We look forward to having you back on our next next episode of Pod Sama Jamma covering your University of Houston Cougars.